you want to open up to Second uh, Kings, if you're following along this morning in your Bible, that's where we're going to be spending pretty much all of our time in Second Kings chapter five. Um, I'm glad everyone's here this morning with us. Um, it's certainly a beautiful day. I think spring. Maybe I don't want to jinx it, but maybe it's here to stay for a little while now. Um, certainly. I didn't, this is kind of sad, I guess, and this just kind of tells you my relationship with holidays in general, but I didn't even realize it was like Easter weekend until a few days ago. Um, so, there you go. Happy Easter, everybody. Um, with that said, Second uh, Kings chapter 5 is probably not a passage that you think of in relation to Easter, and it's, to be honest, it's not really one I do either, um, and that explains why, because I didn't even remember it was Easter until a few days ago. But, hopefully this lesson um, is still going to find... A place in your life and is helpful for you um, in your walk with God um, because I think this this chapter really illustrates um, on a spiritual level kind of our journey with God and I think uh, as we study through this hopefully we can make that a little more evident if that's not already something that you're aware of from this chapter but this this chapter centers on uh, a Syrian a man named Naaman and so some of you probably are pretty familiar with his story. I think it's a pretty well-known story as far as Second Kings goes. Um, there's not too many stories that I know as intimately from this part of Israel's history as maybe this one. Um, and so I think in that way um, it's useful for us because we're a little more familiar with it, but it's also so clearly applicable to us. Uh, and so with that said... I hope we find this lesson useful. So in Luke chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read what the verse says. In verse 11 it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to start with that verse because I think this story personifies that truth of God. Um, And we're going to see that. And so this lesson is going to emphasize Naaman, and what God requires of him and his journey there. But then also at the back end of the chapter, standing in contrast to Naaman, we have Elisha's servant. I'm not really sure how to say his name. I'm going to say Gehazi. That's how I'm going to say it. Um, And so I think that verse in Luke 14, and there's many others that express the same kind of sentiment, and Jesus even told parables expounding on that concept, really is personified in this story from the Old Testament. Um, and so I wanna, uh, want that to be one of the big lessons we glean from this story. And I want, as we work through the story, to see all the ways that this is true. That for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're going to see that kind of worked in two contrasting ways through this chapter. A similar passage that I think, Acts chapter 15, verse 8, says, And God, who knows the heart, testifies them giving... To them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. That's one little excerpt from some words of Peter in Acts 15. But just relaying like James read for us in Jeremiah 17 that God knows the heart. And so that's how he's able to do what Luke 14 said. Exalt those who humble themselves and humble those who exalt themselves. And so this chapter is going to show us that. So let's, let's begin here. And we're certainly not going to be able to read every verse of this chapter, but I want us to kind of highlight some verses as we move through this um, and see how this rings true in this chapter. So Israel 
um, is not in their best position, right? It, it's not the reign of Solomon. It's not the reign of King David. Um, in fact, they're under some other country. Um, depending on your translation of the Bible, it might say in chapter 5 that this is Aram. Some translations say it's Syria, um, but it's not Israel that's in charge here. And so as chapter 5 picks up, it says, Naaman, commander of the army of king of, of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Um, and so we know in Israel's history that they end up being in subjection to other governing bodies, not just the Lord himself, but other nations come into play here. And we see Naaman enter the scene in chapter 5 as being a key figure in Israel's subjection to Syria. Um, In fact, it says that particularly he was able to do what he did because God allowed him to do it, Um, which is really interesting to me. And I think there's so much going on there that I probably don't understand. And it's fascinating how God would allow that to happen and how he worked there. But that's what it says, right? Syria was in the position over Israel, probably primarily because of Naaman, right? And look at what it says outside of that in verse 1. It says that he was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master and in high favor. So there's a lot of like really high characteristics and a lot of glory given to Naaman just in the very first verse of the chapter. And I think this is really setting up his story that we see in chapter 5. He's this great guy. He, it seems like single-handedly, is the reason why Syria has uh, power over Israel, as it seems to be painted in verse 1. He's great. His master loves him. It kind of reminds us maybe of like Joseph. He's in this cool position. But then we get to uh, the next part here in verse 1. He was a mighty man of valor, right? Again, he's distinguished in battle. He's got all this honor, but he was a leper, right? And there seems to be indication that perhaps he wasn't always a leper, right? It's kind of hard to imagine him accomplishing all these things in the Syrian army and being sick the whole time. So perhaps it seems that at some point in this, after probably he had done a lot of these great things the Lord had allowed him to do, he becomes a leper. Um, And so you have kind of this, this contrast in Naaman, right? You have all this glory and this honor and this power and prestige. And then you have this kind of weakness shown, this sickness, this dishonor, really, in a lot of ways, that would be associated with being a leper. And so, just in verse 1, we have this amazing setup for what's going to be the story of Naaman from this chapter. It's really high and mighty. You can imagine he's a proud man. He's got a lot to be proud of, right? Um, But he has this thing that happens to him that doesn't really jive with who he is. Right, it's not befitting of especially Naaman to get leprosy, right? And so there we are. We see the pride of Naaman and his accomplishments, what he's been able to do, who he is, what relationships he has with the king, things like that. And perhaps I would suggest to you that we see the beginning of his humbling, one of his, and I, I use the term humiliation in this chapter, not to say shaming, but just literally the sense of him being brought lower. The first humiliation of Naaman is that he is a leper in chapter 1. And I think as we move through this, I want to point out the various ways that God brings him 
from being exalted in his own eyes to being the humble man that we end up seeing subjecting himself to the teachings of God through Elisha. And so I think as we work through this chapter, that's what I'm going to try to highlight. All the ways God prepares him for that moment. Um, and so let's, let's move forward here. So in verses 3 through 19 of this chapter, I'm going to kind of take this in sections. Um, God humbles Naaman as he searches for a way to deal with this leprosy, right? Like any normal person, that's not something he wants to keep having. It's not something he enjoys having, right? And so he wants to, if available to him, fix it, to solve it, right? And so look at verse uh, 2 and 3 here. Now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were, the prophet, uh, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so the spoke, girl, spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. Okay, so we don't know really much about this little girl that's been basically taken as a slave from Israel, right? Um, she's perhaps maybe arguably the most important person or character in this story uh, because she sets in motion kind of all the events that take place in chapter 5, which is amazing to me. She's just this little servant girl that's in a land that's not her own. But um, here we have this little servant girl recommending basically Elisha to Naaman's wife, right? She seems to There's a lot of good characteristics embodied in this girl, and I don't want to go too much on the side here, but just she shows a love and compassion for Naaman, who's basically her slave master, her boss now, right? A lot of us don't have that kind of compassion for our bosses or people like that in our life, but she shows this huge love um, for her captors, courage in speaking, a bold witness for what is true, right? I mean, in Syria, what do they care about the prophets of God, of Israel? But she says it anyway, right? Um, and Naaman's wife takes note of this and apparently tells Naaman about it because then he goes to the king. This little girl presents this big thing to Naaman who's also a big, important person, right? And so I think this is one of the other humiliations, I think, in a way that God uses to begin this humbling process of Naaman. He's this proud guy, contracts leprosy, And then he uses this little servant girl to tell Naaman what he needs to do um, right at the beginning. And so I think, again, we see a humbling of Naaman in this is that a great man is being told the solution to his problem by his little servant girl that he got. Um, Not only is it a little servant girl, um, the prophet that's going to be able to help him is in the land that he conquered. It's not in Syria. Right, so that there's another humiliation that's going to be involved in this. The solution's in Israel, right? Um, and then another humiliation or humbling in this is that um, he has to present this information to the king. Can you imagine uh, going and being like, "Yeah, so one of the little servant girls I brought from that land that we conquered told me that in Israel, there's this guy that could help me out," right? Just it seems like kind of a kooky, embarrassing thing to kind of have to bring to the king, right? Um, and so we see God starts with just this leprosy thing, right? But then we see again and again how God is preparing him and humbling him 
from the place that he starts at. We can only imagine he's a proud man, right? Um, and we're going to see that even more so as we move through the story. So we see God working because he knows the heart of Naaman, and we see him preparing him for this. Um, let's move into this next section here. Verses uh, 6 through 12 um, is kind of the second sequence of, of Naaman searching for this healing, um, this solution to his problem. In verses 6 through 12 here, Naaman shows the uh, Israeli king the command for him to be healed because the king of Syria promised to send him with this letter, right? He loves Naaman. You can imagine he appreciates Naaman, so he wants to see him healed. And so, as we read, he would send this letter with him. And so, beginning in verse 6, it says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, uh, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman, sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. All right. Let's stop there for a moment. Naaman brings a letter from Syria saying, The king says that this guy's got to heal me, right? The king of Israel receives the letter, and he has a problem with the letter because he thinks he's being set up for disaster. Uh, I think this is a really interesting exchange here. Um, and I think it shows one, of the, one more uh, humiliation of Naaman kind of in this moment even, is that Naaman fully expects, just as it's probably done and was done in Syria, that the kings tell the prophets what to do, Right? We dictate what the prophets are teaching and doing in Syria. So he comes with a letter saying, hey, tell your prophet to heal me. And of course, the king of Israel is like, I can't do that. He thinks that he's being set up for trouble, right? Because in Israel, that's not how it was done. The, the prophets of God were not told by the kings what to do. In fact, the prophets told the kings, where we're, and the kings were supposed to listen, as to what to do. And so I think God is even showing Naaman... Uh, and, and humbling him in this is that his request is basically null and void. It's not any good to command this to be done. If God doesn't want it to be done here, it's not going to happen. Because I think this is just an interesting exchange here that Naaman comes with this expectation of the king being able to force this to happen. And he's basically told it's not. It doesn't work that way. Um, he's this high and powerful man from Syria who really has no power in this moment. Um, and so we see God humbling humbling Naaman here. Uh, and as we continue through, through this story, look at verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, who Naaman is searching for, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, and he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. All right. So, so Elisha hears that this is going on, and so he responds in a favorable way, a way that Naaman would want to be responded to, right? He says, yeah, yeah, let him. He sends a, he sends a message saying, yeah, let him come to me. Um, but I think this whole scenario is not exactly how Naaman pictured it going, right? You can imagine Naaman's thinking, I'm going to go here. I'm going to give this command to the king. The king's going to send for the prophet. The prophet's going to come here and do his thing because the king tells him to. What ends up actually happening is the king says, I can't do that. This is a, you know, you're just setting me up for disaster. So there's one humbling, right? The second humbling is that he has to wait for a message from Elisha. It's not forced, right? So there's kind of another humbling moment. 
And then the third thing is, is that he has to go to Elisha, right? Elisha is not coming to him. Um, and so if you're a man of stature and importance in Syria and you come to Israel and you're expecting all these things to happen for you, this is not how you anticipate it going down. I have to wait on Elisha's response. I have to go to Elisha. The king actually can't tell him what to do. It's totally foreign, I imagine, in many ways, to Naaman. And so we see God continuing to kind of work with Naaman and kind of bringing him down step by step. Um, And so let's move forward even from this moment um, in verse 9 here. So Elisha sends for Naaman. Naaman is probably humbled by some of that, right? He's probably thinking, what is going on? This place is a mess, right? But he goes anyway. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. All right. So this is the first real moment that we get a sense of Naaman feeling the humiliation coming upon him and not being too happy about it, right? Not being happy about it not being as grand and as quick and all these other things, ways that he would expect this to go. Um, so he, go, he goes to Elisha's house, all right? Um, and let's observe some of the other ways that God is even humbling him in this moment. And I think this, these ones are more obvious just because we see Naaman's reaction. Um, he goes to his house, and he arrives kind of what we might call with his entourage, right? He arrives with his chariots and his escorts. He's this big uh, arrival. It's not just Naaman, right? When he gets to Elisha's house, who comes to the door? Just a little servant guy of Elisha, right? Um, I was made aware of this uh, this week or last week or something. And I thought this was interesting that in Eastern culture, the more important the person that comes to your door, the more important the person you send to answer the door. Um, and so I just think this is interesting that he arrives with this kind of entourage, this escort, and he gets to the door. And it's not Elisha answering the door, it's the servant. And in fact, he never even has a face-to-face with Elisha. right? The servant's like, my master told me to tell you this is what you need to do. Can you imagine at this point, after all that's gone on, He's contracted leprosy. He learned about a solution from the servant girl. He came into the land that he conquered. The king wouldn't even do what he commanded him to do. Then he had to be sent a message from Elisha waiting for it that he could come to him. And when he finally gets here, a servant comes to the door and tells him what he needs to do. Right? Just boom, 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 boom. You can see the pride just kind of... Right? Um, Now, when he gets the solution... All right, here it is. Finally... He's presented a solution to his problem, his leprosy, right? His sickness. He doesn't like the solution, right? Um, As he observes, uh, as it says here, he he basically doesn't think this is impressive enough, right? He thought there could just be this waving of the hand and this speaking, and it would happen. Maybe it's not quick enough, who knows? But it's not good enough for him, right? Um, Also, the Jordan's not even impressive, (laughs) 
right? Are not the rivers of, and I don't even know how to say those names, those two rivers in Syria, are they not more impressive rivers than the Jordan River? He's come all this way to be dipped in some creek in Israel that's not even as good as the rivers back home, right? Just the pride of Naaman kind of swells in this moment. And this is the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? I've lowered myself all these times to come all this way, and then finally you're going to tell me to dip seven times in this crummy creek. That's Josh's translation of what's going on here. Uh, and so what does he do? He just kind of storms out of the place, right? Uh, well, let's look at what happens next, and I think this is the third sequence in Naaman's search for healing. Uh, we see kind of the last humiliations of Naaman before he finally is humble enough to, to do what God is asking him to do here. Um, so look at this next section here, verse 13, beginning. Um, let me find my place. Verse 13, But his servants came near and said to him, My father, his great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. All right, let's just stop there for a moment. So his, his name is storming off, and the pride of this moment, right? He's holding on to the last little bit of pride he has. I've come all this way, you can imagine him saying, but I'm not getting in that stinky river, right? And I'm not dipping seven times. You could have just waved your hand and made this happen. We assume those are thoughts he, he might have, right? Who comes and straightens him out? His own servants, right? And so this seems to be kind of the, the last hurrah of Naaman's pride is that he's being corrected and admonished by his own servants, right? And they point out to him, would you have not have done it if it was something more grand? But you can be healed, like you're overlooking the fact that you could be washed and be cleaned because it's not as grand or as quick or as glorious as you wanted it to be. But don't forget, you're a leper, and you could not be a leper if you would just do what's being requested of you to do, right? Commanded of you, you could even say. And so, thankfully, the way this story unfolds is Naaman actually listens. Um, Can you imagine the Naaman in verse 1 listening to this? It's kind of hard to imagine that guy the pride of Syria, the commander of the army, listening to this command. Um, He may have, but it's just hard to imagine that guy doing that, right? But God, knowing his heart, has prepared him for this moment through all these various ways he's been humbled on the journey here, right? Um, It's just an amazing story of God, like we said in Jeremiah 17 or in Luke 14, he's he's exalting the humble and humbling the proud. Definitely Naaman, I think, would have been the proud at the beginning of this chapter. We've seen God humbling him here. And then as he finally humbles himself to get in the river, what happens to him? You could say there's this exaltation of him again because he's now clean, right? Um, And so this is just a really fascinating story. But as we continue, it doesn't end here for Naaman. In fact, we won't read these verses, but as he's healed, he finally does get to meet Elisha. Right, And he, in fact, what we read earlier in the chapter about him bringing all this money and this stuff with him to make payment for the healing, he tries to offer that to Elisha, and Elisha won't even take it. Um, It's kind of this, even after he's healed, he gets kind of this, uh, another humiliation here, another bout of humbling, is that 
There's no payment for what you just received. There's no way that you could pay for this. Um, so Elisha just kind of waves it off, like, don't worry about it. You don't need to pay me. Just, you know, you assume he says, take it back with you, right? Um, and so as far as Naaman's story in this chapter, that's where it ends. We see Naaman humbled and humbled from his proud beginning. Even after he's healed, he wants to try to give back some sort of payment for what he's been given, and it's not accepted. It's not enough, you know, it's just, it's no good here. Just kind of take it back with you, right? That's where Gehazi enters the scene. I think we see the converse of kind of Naaman's story, um, a contrast, if you will. Um, Gehazi is the servant of Elisha. Um, he's kind of his right-hand man, it seems like, um, in his life. You have Elisha and Gehazi, and we don't see him pop up very often. Um, in verse 20, it does say he is the servant. Um, if you look in chapter 5, verse 20, it reads, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. Um, also, it seems like he would have witnessed some of the works of Elisha. Um, for instance, uh, when prophecies were fulfilled back in chapter 4, um, even the miracles, maybe the rain ceasing and starting upon Elisha's word or the resurrection of the woman's son that Elisha had even prophesied in the beginning about anyway. Um, he, it seems like he would have been there to kind of witness and take part in those things. Um, so you could say that Gehazi is starting in a totally different place than Naaman started in, right? Naaman on the outside, even looked probably proud and seemed like he would be this glorious, honorable guy and seemed important and seemed high up, right? And Gehazi is important in the sense that he's kind of working with Elisha, and if you care about God's things, then maybe he's important, but probably not that important in the eyes of the world, not like Naaman was, right? He's just a servant guy to Elisha. But, and he should be super humble, having seen all of the stuff that Elisha was able to do only because God allowed him to do it and see these prophecies and know how powerful God is and see him working in the lives of Elisha and other people around him. But this story reveals something about Gehazi and that's he had a kind of a hidden pride, right? While Naaman's pride was very obvious and he kind of lived in that, that proud way of his life and being the commander and conquering, Gehazi had kind of this subversive pride, right? He's the right-hand man of Elisha. But look what this story shows us about him. Picking up in verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the, the, the man of God, uh, see, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied, uh, tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on his two servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. Um, okay. So Gehazi, having witnessed this amazing healing on top of all the other things he's probably seen, his thought is, there's a lot of money that's leaving town that Elisha just turned down. How, how can I come up with a situation to be able to get some of this? Um, and he conjures up this story about how 
two sons of prophets have come to town and basically Elisha needs doesn't have what they need. And so he remembers, I guess, Naaman has it, so he sent Gehazi to go get it, right? Well, Gehazi probably didn't look like Naaman. He probably didn't look proud and haughty and like the conqueror of God's people, right? Um, but God, as we read in Jeremiah 17, knowing the heart, knew where Gehazi was and knew where Naaman was, right? Naaman needed to be humbled, but it seemed like God knew that if he could go through that process, he would respond to Elisha's healing, right? But Gehazi here is just showing himself to be the opposite. Let's continue in this story as Elisha confronts what Gehazi's done here. Um, picking back up in verse 25, or 24, And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and sent them in a way, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, keep uh, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out of his presence, a leper like snow. All right. So rather than learning from his position with Elisha and the company that he was able to keep, um, it seems like Gehazi just kind of fostered, similar to maybe like Judas that we've been studying in John, he just kind of allowed his, his heart to be the way it was going to be and keep it that way and just kind of mask that, right, due to the company and the things that were going on. Meanwhile, Naaman's life was very obvious to all, Right? He's the commander of Syria, and he conquered Israel. But God was able to see that heart for what it was and to confront that, right? But Gehazi kind of had this inside thing that was festering that probably wasn't as obvious, but God confronted it as well, right? But they'd end up in totally different places. The obvious sickness of Naaman, that he saw himself and was willing to accept that he needed a solution for he got. He was able to be humbled by God and receive that healing. But Gehazi doesn't ever seem like he realizes he has a sickness, right? His sickness isn't as obvious as Naaman's, right? He's lying and he's deceptive and he's greedy, but he doesn't even really acknowledge that because when Elisha kind of confronts him, he's like, I didn't go anywhere. Mm-mm. Right? He doesn't even acknowledge his sickness. He's not even seeking a solution to it. And so consequently, what happens to him? Well, the greed of Naaman's stuff, God basically says, yeah, you can have Naaman's stuff, and he gives him his leprosy, right? Um, we just see two totally opposite people here. Um, and I think what we learn from this is probably you know many things. There's probably a lot of lessons, but the, emphasize, the lesson I want to emphasize here is that what we read is true. God knows the hearts of people. He knows what our problems are, what's keeping us from coming to him, right? But when we're like Naaman and we recognize that there is some problem, it may not always be the ways we expect, like a little servant girl in our house telling us the solution and us having to go to Israel and then going to the guy's house and the servant... It may not be the ways we expect or even like, but God can humble us to receive some sort of healing, Right? But if we're like Gehazi and we have a problem, 
but we don't really acknowledge the problem, and we're not willing to confront the problem. God's going to humble us the same as he's going to humble Naaman, but the end result is not going to be as good as what the humbling of Naaman was able to produce, right? As Luke 14 said, for everyone who exalts himself, Naaman, right? Gehazi will be humbled. They both were humbled, right? Gehazi got leprosy and was confronted. His problem was confronted. But Naaman also lived up to the second part of Luke 14, 11. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's where Gehazi messed up. He didn't really appreciate and recognize his problem. And so he never humbled himself. Uh, And so my exhortation to everyone here is God knows the kind of heart you have. And he may be working in his own ways to humble you and bring you to that healing. But we have to recognize that's what's happening. On some level, there has to come a moment we recognize, you know, God does have some healing work to do to me. Uh, And so I would encourage everybody to kind of be real with where you are um, in your relationship to God and what problems, the sicknesses, the leprosies are in your life. Because um, sin is just that. And I think this story can illustrate for us in a physical way what is spiritually true. And I think that's really what it's here for. Is that sin is a leprosy, right? And Naaman's was obvious. And Gehazi's was more secretive. And depending on how we approach that, God's going to humble us either way. But depending on how we approach that, the results of that humbling can be very different. Um, and so we have to be honest with that and be humble so that God can exalt us. Uh, So if there's anyone here that wants help with that from people around you, um, you have something going on in your life that you need to kind of confront, either by prayer or just other things that you might need help with, let somebody know. Um, There's certainly no better group of people that I can think of right now than the people in this room to help you with that. And if that's just something that you've never really participated in in the first place, uh, we can talk to you about that as well as trying to receive God's healing in that way. Um, Anyway, Richard's going to lead us in a, a song at this time.